the material that the church encouraged us to cover today was actually called drunkenness and gluttony, but I thought I'd broaden it a little bit to this whole idea of addictions and self-control. And at the end, we're going to talk about what the church is doing to help you if you are dealing with some of those issues or if you know people that are. And so we're going to, first of all, look at the, the whole section of some of the verses that have to do with drunkenness and gluttony. We see this, first of all, in Proverbs 23, verses 29 and following. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes, those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine, do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things. Your heart will utter perverse things. You will be like well, one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When I was awake, I must have another drink. Then looking over to uh, chapter 25, we have a couple of verses there. First of all, verse 16. If you found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. Which are the words here in the scriptures. And one more, verse 27. It is not good to eat much honey, nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. And the concept that is being explained here is that whether we look at drunkenness or gluttony, a little bit or I want to expand it to the whole idea of addictions, that sometimes there are physical dangers, mental, and even as we'll see in a minute, financial dangers to this. And so Solomon, again, is warning a young person, but ultimately us, by inference, about the evils of drunkenness. But we don't necessarily talk very often about uh, indulgence and gluttony. It's not a verse that you're going to hear me read just before we do our chili cook-off, for example, where you have to eat all the different kinds of chilies and all the desserts. I don't think I'll be reading that verse when we do one of those again. Um, but it is something that people have been thinking about for some time. It's actually listed as one of the seven deadly sins. And so the idea here is that church leaders, as early as, as far as we can tell, the 6th century, lumped things like overeating, drunkenness, and others to illustrate a bigger spiritual problem. Those were symptoms of what? Excessiveness, you know, lack of self-control. And so the Proverbs teach us that excessiveness can really affect us, both mentally and also in terms of our physical health, sometimes our finances, relationships, and decision-making. So I want this to be broader than just talking about drinking or overeating, although those are the passages we're looking at. We see that there are times when we run into individuals, maybe even when we have been guilty, of not having self-control. And how do we address that? And, of course, it points out that drinking can obviously spread out of control, leading to alcoholism. A little bit later, when I talk about one of the booklets I have available, if you'd like to get a copy, we can see that the cost of alcoholism in America is sky high and has been something that has been around for, of course, centuries. And, of course, it can lead to mental disease and, of course, all sorts of issues of addiction. It, of course, can impair your 
your judgment. It can lead to dangerous situations. Of course, it can lead, obviously, to financial ruin. Whether it's alcohol or other drugs, we can see the impact that that can have. And many of us have seen that happen. Sometimes we've seen it happen to a family member. Sometimes we've seen it happen to a co-worker or someone in our neighborhood. Lives that have been destroyed by alcohol. And again, I'm going to, at the end, talk about what the church has done to help you address these issues of addiction. You may have one, and I want you to know there are answers. You may not, but you may know somebody that would benefit from that. And so we're going to talk about some of the practical applications of that first. But let's, if we can, go back to verse 23. Um, it is interesting because it starts out, you kind of don't know where it's going, because it talks about woe and sorrow. Then you get to redness of the eyes, and you go, okay, I see where we're going now. And that is that this uh, whole Proverbs 23, if you read it in its context, Solomon kind of changes things to once again maybe surprise the person listening to that or reading to that to now get in and help them understand the danger of drunkenness. And so he builds kind of a riddle, then he gives its answer, then he gives its instruction and its consequences and all of the rest. And so it is written in such a way to sort of get your attention and then to remind you that this is something that you do not want to do. The conclusion is so interesting because in look at verse 35 here, what uh, shall I do? Well, and again, the implication of some of these is, well, I just need to get another drink. And again, this is, again, illustrating the pain, the emotional pain, the physical pain, the strife of the family disillusionment that takes place when we address those issues. And then he gets confusing images, you know, when you're in your, what they call your DTs. Sometimes you have hallucinations and all sorts of things, and is ultimately dulled, and it, of course, results in that. And what I think is interesting, to go back to where he talks about in verse 31, it starts with what? It's sparkling at first. Oh, that wine looks very nice. Oh, that looks like the kind of drink that I would like to have. Or even the drugs that sometimes people are seduced into. Oh, that looks interesting. I want to try that. And so at first, it seems attractive. But it then, like it says, poisons like a viper. Um, and of course, if your blood alcohol level gets too high... How many examples have we had just in the last couple of years of individuals that have died simply because it got so high that it actually killed them? But it could bite you in other ways in terms of making bad decisions, embarrassing you. Um, matter of fact, right now there's almost a whole cottage industry of people on YouTube where they have videos that got posted when people were drunk. Um, and, of course, I guess that's supposed to be funny, but you can understand, ultimately, that those individuals probably as well regret, first of all, that they did it, second of all, that it's on YouTube, and third of all, that people all over the world are getting a chance to see it. And so it's just a reminder of that in terms of the dangers of alcohol. We don't as much talk about gluttony, but it's worth mentioning that sometimes food can cause the same damage uh, to our stomach, and it makes you vulnerable sometimes if you don't eat right, certain kinds of illnesses. And I love, again, how the commentary said alcohol can be sparkling at first, food can be sparkling at first, but again, if you overindulge, you know, it can also bite you as well. And so I love the fact that um, then as we get over to the next verse, it talks about eating honey. 
And I don't know anybody in this room who's probably had so much honey they threw up. But nevertheless, that apparently was a problem that Solomon talks about. And again, just as you uh, are to have enough to eat, the issue is self-control. Solomon doesn't say don't ever eat honey, but he says eat just enough. And so I think there's a wisdom that we can discern from the scriptures, even on something that you probably never really hear talked about. I cannot think of a sermon I've ever heard in this church or any other on gluttony. But if you go back to the 16th, uh, 17th century, certainly some of those times, you can find, even in the 19th century, sermons on gluttony. And yet, interesting enough, we probably have a greater opportunity to engage in gluttony than ever before because food is so available. Uh, but nevertheless, let's come back to this because ultimately the principle here is self-control. And whether we're talking about drugs and alcohol, whether we're talking about other addictions, that could be um, sexual addiction, that could be gambling, it could be pornography, it could be all sorts of issues, we are talking about the ultimate answer is what? Self-control. So if you want to take some notes, I put down Galatians 5, and 23, of course, the fruit of the Spirit, many of which we see in our stained glass up here, which are there. But also this idea that the alternative to drunkenness is what? Do not be filled with wine, do not be drunk with wine, for that is what? Dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so again, this is the idea that whenever we allow ourselves to be controlled by a substance, you know, we may not be in control. And so this is a lesson that I think we in the church understand. I'll talk more about how the church has dealt with this um, and what are some of the solutions. But I just wanted you to begin to realize that even though we're talking about drunkenness and gluttony, I think it applies to much more. Well, let's, if we can now, look at the other issue because the verses also spend a fair amount of time talking about the pursuit of pleasure. And that's, I think, at the root of some of the things we're talking about. So first of all, Proverbs 21 Verse 17, whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. Now, it isn't saying that we should never enjoy pleasure, but it is suggesting that sometimes that is something that we tend to not put in the right perspective. In Proverbs 23, verses 19 to 21, hear my son and be wise and direct your heart in the way. What does he say? Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty and slumber will clothe them with rags. And one more real quickly, um, and that is over in verse uh, 7 of chapter 28. The one who keeps the law is a son with understanding, but a companion of gluttons shames his father. That one's a little bit hard to understand until you get into the ancient Near Eastern culture. But first of all, our second principle is uh, pursuing pleasure can sometimes lead to financial ruin. Is that say say we never should have pleasure? No, that's not the point. But it's getting back to temperance, balance, um, self-control. And again, it gives us another reason why overindulgence isn't a good idea. Because it can affect your mental health. It can affect your emotional health. But it also can lead to what? Financial ruin. And so it's easy to see how drunkenness can be because they may spend a significant portion of their paycheck drinking and they can't even maybe keep their job because of drinking. 
I'm well aware of an individual whose life has been destroyed because her husband gambles all the time and you never have any indication whether or not a paycheck will even make it in the front door of the house. So this is more than obviously just drinking, but it happens when you overindulge in just about anything, whether it's uh, so-called recreational drugs, gambling, lots of others. Any all-consuming addiction can consume us and destroy us. Just a few minutes, I'm going to recommend one of the best books I've seen on the subject of how to think about addiction from a Christian point of view. So I'll have that on the screen. But you can see the testimony of individuals. And I'm also going to talk about Michael Perrin because he gives you a great story as well of having been a meth addict and what that did to his life and his family and his story. And now, of course, we have put him in a position where he can actually provide help for others. But look at what Solomon says. He ends that particular passage by the fact that this, they will slumber and will clothe them with rags. One of the articles that I've written recently in our Outlook, which is our magazine that comes out each month in Point of View, is on homelessness. And one of the resources that I've used is a book uh, that is by Michael Schellenberger called San Francisco. <laughs> and basically it's an individual who is very liberal. His office is in Berkeley. And he used to support this idea of drug legalization. Uh, now he has changed his mind because he's seen what has happened with the prevalence of drugs and alcohol and others and how the issue of homelessness has just proliferated all over the San Francisco Bay Area. Matter of fact, he was interviewed recently by John Stossel, and John Stossel says, well, that's everywhere. He says, no, it's not. It's not in Carmel, California. You know, you might remember the former mayor of Carmel, California, was Dirty Harry, remember? Uh, you know, that was way back, but I mean, it's not there. But when you have a situation where we would never allow people in law enforcement to deal with people that are drunk or using drugs extensively, you have the problem that you have right now. And so you see these people sometimes living the reality here in rags, in these homeless shelters or in tents out on the street. And again, it's a reminder of what Solomon warned centuries ago. Now, what about this one statement here about bringing shame to the father? Well, it turns out that in ancient Jewish culture, there were a couple of criteria that were used to see whether or not you were bringing a good image to your father or a bad image. And apparently, being a drunkard or a glutton represented kind of the epitome in the Jewish culture of lack of discipline. We see this because one of the uh, resources that I sometimes dip into, in addition to the Talmud, is called the Mishnah. Now, what are the Mishnah? The Mishnah are the teachings of some of the Jewish rabbis, and it actually measures the rebelliousness of a son based on their eating and drinking habits. So it's interesting that in the ancient Near East, even in Jewish culture, a person that drank too much, ate too much, was actually seen as someone who was disgracing their father. A companion of gluttons disgraces their father. Which I think is an interesting concept there as well. And again, this was not only that it was a disgrace because of what it was doing to the person's body or whatever, but also it was an example of extravagance and wastefulness. 
Uh, you can think of, for example, the prodigal son. What isn't? He pursues pleasure and brings reproach onto his father. Same kind of idea being there. And instead of providing for your family, instead of contributing to the Jewish community, instead of helping the poor and doing good in the world, instead, you're actually very selfish because you're pursuing pleasure and you're squandering the resources that your family has provided for you. If I want to go back to look at the New Testament, and a little bit later I'm going to give you some other New Testament verses in addition to the ones we looked in Proverbs, but here's one. In Ephesians 5.18, it talks about drunkenness leading to wastefulness, but really it refers to debauchery. I just mentioned that a minute ago. And in the ESV, they refer to it as wastefulness. And so drunkenness oftentimes, it implies, can lead to, of course, sexual immorality. How many stories do we know about that? But also the wastefulness in drinking and gluttony. Uh, so again, we see lots of illustrations, not only in the Proverbs, but isn't it interesting, Jesus uses one in his famous parable of the talents in Matthew 25, and he reminds them ultimately that the resources God has placed in your hand, God expects you to be a good steward of that. And when you waste those in pleasure, when you waste those in drunkenness, you waste it in addiction, you waste it in uh, various pursuits of pleasure, that is not advancing the kingdom of God. And so if we cut back on our extravagances sometimes, then we have more resources to actually use to build up the kingdom. Last one, real quickly, is just a reminder as well that this excessiveness is not a wise way to live your life. And so, first of all, in chapter 20, verse 1, Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray is not wise. Then over in verse 23, verses 19 and following, we again read those passages. I'll just read the last part. Be not among drunkards, among gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and God will clothe them with rags. And then finally, one more in uh, Proverbs 31, as we are looking, of course, of the characteristics of a godly woman, we also see in verse 4, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what they have decreed and pervert the rights of those afflicted. And so again, the implication is that sometimes you will not be in your right mind if you're an individual in a position of leadership. So again, it uh, tells us that overindulgence isn't wise. It's simply something we shouldn't do. It can lead us astray not only from, of course, the mental and physical and financial implications, but it will also lead us away from wisdom. And if you've ever seen the stories of drunken kings and leaders, they're not the individuals that you go to for wise leadership. And so there's an implication there as well. Gluttony isn't wise because we're living for ourselves and our own pleasure. We're not living for God is the implication. And so, again, it's a good example. If you're involved in any kind of addiction, you're loving yourself. But wisdom is fearing the Lord. Then we hear a great message today about what the law of love means. Drunkenness and gluttony is pursuing pleasure for yourself, but wisdom is offering yourself as what? A living sacrifice to God. Since a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Romans 12, 1 and 2. Drunkenness and gluttony is indulging your desires. Self-control is submitting to what God says is good, which always ends up better for you in the end. 
So as we come to the end here, let's also talk about how does the church address this issue? Do you have the freedom to drink? Yes, you do. Uh, it is very clear that we do, and uh, certainly there are implications in the scriptures of individuals that were able to drink wine and other drink. But we have decided as the leadership here in the church that we'll apply the principle of 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23. That's where the Apostle Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And so that's why those of us in positions of leadership, uh, we have a number of deacons in this room, and you had to pledge that you would not drink. Those of us in leadership as well. Of course, at Dallas Seminary, where I've taught, you know, we don't drink. Now, does that mean we can't? Well, no, it doesn't mean we're not uh, allowed to do that. But we recognize that just as Paul addresses that issue in 1 Corinthians 10, and in a couple of weeks, we're also going to address it in Romans 14, because, again, that's another issue where we talk about that. There was the freedom for any believer to actually eat meat sacrificed to idols. So you can look at 1 Corinthians 10. You can look at the first about six verses in Romans 14, which we're going to get to in a couple of weeks in the preaching schedule, in which you are free to do that. But the argument was is that even though we have the right to do so, even though we have the freedom to do so, wisdom says it might be better for our minds, our bodies, but most importantly for our public witness to abstain. As a couple of us are joking around here, we don't want drunken deacons, okay? So it's just, just a bad, you know, uh, testimony for the world. And so we're asking the question, is it helpful to do so? Does it build up others? And this is the heart of someone who is an other-minded, gospel-focused individual. And so, again, some of you might say, well, why is it that you have the leadership at Preston and not drink? You don't have the freedom to do that? No, we have the freedom to do that, but we decide for the sake of the gospel, for the advancement of the gospel, not to do so. That makes sense? You may disagree or disagree, but I think it makes a great deal of sense. And it's something that's required oftentimes any place where I've taught at a seminary, Bible college, uh, to do that, just as a public witness to the community. And again, the argument, I think, is when you work hard to eat better, get in shape, well, you're denying yourself sometimes temporary pleasures. You know, some of you go and work out. Some of you eat right. Some of us eat right better than others. We recognize this in the class. Okay, we can have fun with that one even today when we go to the buffet. But that is the thing that we recognize that there is a sense you'll be happier and healthier. But also, wouldn't it be just great if you were out there in the watching world, people say, this person is healthy. They don't seem to have anxiety. They seem to be very gracious. I want to know what it is about them. And it's because they have denied themselves some of the pleasures that have brought people down. And so, again, we can choose to deny ourselves and follow Jesus. Frankly, our lives will be more abundant. I want to put down Matthew 16 and especially John 10, 10. You know, it came that they might have what? Life that's more abundant. And so that's kind of the testimony today as we look at the issue of drinking and gluttony. But for just a few minutes, I thought I'd put uh, maybe a finer point on that because I brought just a few. I think I only have about two dozen copies of my booklet on a biblical view on drug abuse. And so I don't necessarily have one for everybody, but if some of you say, I'd like to read this, or maybe this is something I could hand on to someone else, it's the case. And I spend some time, first of all, talking about this issue of drug abuse and how chronic it has been in our society. 
I mean, we are hearing about opioid addiction just coming through the roof. We're seeing deaths from fentanyl and all sorts of other things. And then, of course, now we hear these latest designer drugs. And, of course, I talked about methamphetamine just a minute ago. And so I think the principles we've just looked at also apply to this area of other kinds of addictions. And one of the other books that I did an interview with by David Capellian, he really just helped me understand how significant these numbers are. The estimates, and this book is a couple years old, so now that we've gone through a pandemic and a lockdown, I think those numbers are going to be higher. But looking at the older numbers, the estimates were that about 80 million Americans are intoxicated in one way or another with some kind of illegal drug or alcohol. Now think about that. He then reminded us that of greater concern is that if you look at some of these statistics that have come from the FBI, Justice Department, and the rest, that about 40 million of those 80 million at one time or another have driven under the influence. That makes you want to move to West Texas and get out of there. I mean, my goodness. I mean, this is, I mean, when you're driving up and down the street, you know, which ones of these individuals are addicted to something and driving under the influence or maybe addicted to their phone and not looking out at what's happening in front of them? I mean, you t take your life in your hands almost anymore when you're out there driving. And so that is the case. But then he added one more. If you look at other, quote, legal drugs... And those would be op opioids. I mean, it could be Paxol. That could be, um, you know, um, Prozac. It can be, you know, all sorts of different th kinds of things like that. You get that number up to about 130 million. Now, what I'm not saying is, is you can't have those drugs in your system. That's not the point. We always recognize the value of certain drugs that are prescribed by a doctor. But what we're running into is a fair number of people that are addicted to some of those other, quote, legal drugs. So if you start adding those numbers in there as well, you're up to about 130 million Americans. And you recognize a situation that maybe is starting to get out of control. I see some of you shaking your heads. I know you're the ones working in the medical field and you've seen these before. So you know exactly what I'm talking about. And it's just a reminder of why this is a very important issue. And I want to thank again Prestonwood for forcing me to actually talk about drugs and gluttony and all sorts of other things and alcohol because these are important. One other one that I thought I'd just mention real quickly is another book that I found very helpful to really help parents begin to pay more attention to their children. Now, some of you have kids, some of you have grandkids, but what we are finding in almost every survey is that parents are in denial. Here's just a couple of statistics, and the book is full of them. You know, 5% of parents believe their teen has used inhalants to get high. The actual number is 20%. You know, most parents think, uh, well, maybe 21% of parents believe their teens have a friend who uses marijuana. And those numbers are old, but more than a majority of them actually are. And many of them have used it. And, of course, now that we're pushing more and more for drug legalization, I think the reality is, is that, if anything, this book and some of the others that are out there just say, we really need to pay attention. So how do we think about this in terms of a biblical point of view? Well, I gave you one verse in the New Testament, Ephesians 5.18 
obviously admonishes Christians not to be drunk. But if you're looking for some other passages, for example, here's some others that we didn't look at. Uh, Deuteronomy 21, Amos 6, 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5, all give us an indication that drunkenness is a sin. And then, of course, we see these various passages. We've already looked at Proverbs 20, but Isaiah 5, Habakkuk 2, and others that warn about the dangers of drinking. So that's drinking, and of course we didn't have as many of those kinds of drugs then, but when we did have drugs in the Old and New Testament, the Bible does have something to say about that. Because drugs were an integral part of many of these ancient Near Eastern societies. Many of these pagan cultures, for example, uh, surrounding the nation of Israel, used drugs as part of their religious ceremonies. So oftentimes when the Old Testament in particular talks about sorcery or witchcraft, it's also ultimately implying drug use as well. As a matter of fact, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, in the New Testament the word is actually easy to find, it is pharmakia, from which we get the word pharmacy and pharmaceutical. So the word sorcery was actually tied into this idea of drugs. And so the implication, I think, for some of that is simply to recognize that uh, there was ultimately, even though drugs aren't mentioned as much, that was sort of part and parcel with some of the warnings that were given about witchcraft and sorcery that existed and surrounded the nation of Israel. Drugs were used ultimately to actually go into a spiritual world. Uh, those of us growing up in the San Francisco Bay Area, there were people like Timothy Leary, you know, talked about drop out and get high and LSD and those kinds of things. Carlos Castaneda talked about peyote. Uh, there were all sorts of things in which drugs were a deliberate attempt to get into an altered state of consciousness, but oftentimes then they would contact spiritual beings. I think from a biblical point of view, sometimes those could have been demons. And so you can see that in that day, drugs were tied to sorcery. I'm not saying that all people using recreational, quote, recreational drugs today are tapping into the occult. But I do believe that that could be a possible threat uh, as well. And so we don't want to discount the occult connection. So if nothing else, there's just a lot that we can learn and begin to take seriously whether anybody in this room is dealing with an addiction, I don't know, because many of you have never had a chance to share that. But if you are, I want to maybe point to some resources that would be helpful, but also want to recognize that even if you're not, if you live in the real world, as you just saw by the numbers, there are people that you can minister to that may be addressing that issue. Just before I do, let me give you Galatians 5.19. I put that up there before, but I didn't really read the passage. The acts of sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And even this idea of sorcery there referred again to this idea of drugs. Paul oftentimes refers to witchcraft, even in the New Testament, as being something that is drugs. So again, using drugs, whether to get high or to tap into the occult, is ultimately in the scriptures defined as a sinful activity, part of our carnal nature. And obviously, one more good reason to stay away from them. They are obviously 
physical and mental as well as financial reasons, but there are also spiritual reasons that we can talk about. With that, let me just mention uh, one of the books that I do recommend in the booklet is a book called The Heart of Addiction, A Biblical Perspective. We're dealing more and more with various things that are addictive, and uh, these addictions can be devastating, like drugs and alcohol. They can be financially devastating, like gambling. They can be sexually devastating by, you know, sexual addiction, pornography. Uh, they can be just distractions, like even social media. And so, really, that's uh, kind of one of the classic Christian books on the issue of addiction. Um, Suzanne and I had a chance to spend a fair amount of time with Steve Arterburn at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention. What a great guy. And here is one of his Arterburn Wellness Series, Understanding and Loving a Person with Alcohol and Drug Addiction. And there are many other books by the Minrith Clinic and all sorts of others that I might mention. And, of course, my booklet on a biblical view of drug abuse. But I just want again to say I am so grateful that Pastor Graham called up uh, Michael Perrin and said, would you come and establish life recovery? And so if you are dealing with grief, divorce, addiction, a prodigal child, whatever, this is an organization that's in the church that is available to you. And I really hope that you will take advantage of that. You know, Jonathan used the story today about the man that fell into the pit, but there's two stories about the pit. That one was where man's in the pit and everybody goes by, you know, well, I'm glad you're in the pit, or let me do a scientific paper on the pit, or you deserve to get into the pit, and finally Jesus reaches down, pulls him out of the pit. But there's another story about the pit, which is very similar. Man falls into a pit, and again, there are people that say, well, you deserve to be in the pit. I'm sorry you're in the pit. We're going to do a scientific thing. But one man jumps in the pit. And he said, why'd you jump in the pit? Because I've been there, and I know how to get out. And that's one of the things I love about Michael Perrin. Here's a man who's been in the pit. I mean, he, as he well shares with us on radio, and as he shared in uh, this church, I mean, he was a meth addict. And if you want to read the story, it is, it is horrendous. But you know what? He can now hold your hand if you're dealing with an addiction or drug. He says, you know, I've been in the pit, and I can help you get out. Parker? Thanks.